0: In 1993, when I was a junior at the University of Delaware, I must have applied for 200 summer internships, and I received responses from almost no one. Maybe they were too busy. Maybe they were facing tight deadlines. Maybe they just didn't care. Whatever the case, I grew used to the silence. Then, one day, a letter arrived on Boston Magazine stationery. It was written by Steve Buckley, an editor at the time who is now a fantastic writer at The Athletic. And along with breaking down all of my clips, he gave me some of the best advice I'd ever received. Here's exactly what Steve wrote. Jeff, ask yourself these questions when you're sending out clips. Is it different? Is it well-written? Will it catch the eye of an editor? I reckon one of your professors will disagree with this and say that your job is not to assemble clips, but to report the news. And I guess this is true. It's just that in doing your routine assignments, there will occasionally be that clever, offbeat story waiting to be written. And those are the ones that you should be setting aside for use as clips. Hey, you're not just at Delaware to learn, you're there to get a job. Go out and find a homeless person on the streets of Newark and write his life story. Find a war monument in the center of town named after somebody nobody's ever heard of, and then see if there's a story behind it. To show you what I mean, I'm enclosing just such a piece that I wrote a couple of years ago. Dare to be different, Jeff. 27 years later, Steve Buckley's words are as true as ever. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers, Sling and Yang, a podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's episode stars Greg Prado, the super unorthodox author of a slew of sports and music-related books, including biographies of the rock band Blind Melon, the 1980s New York Jets, and the non-makeup years of KISS. This is episode number 184, Let's Sling Some Yang dad being quarantined sucks and so does the podcast well greg first of all thanks for doing this i view you in my head as the weirdest author in america in a very positive way okay i feel like you do books you do subjects that i want to do but i feel like a publisher would tell me don't do like (laughs) if i went to a publisher and said i want to do the 80s jets i think the publisher would be like that's not you're not going to sell any copies of that book and I'd be like, yeah, but I want to do it. And they're like, ah, I don't know. Or Blind Melon. Like, I share with you a love of Blind Melon. And your book on Blind Melon is actually one of my favorite books ever. And I've recommended it a million times. But if I went to my agent and said, I really want to do a Shannon Hoon book, he would <laughs> say, who the fuck is Shannon Hoon? You wouldn't even know who Shannon <laughs> Hoon is. You wrote a book about Eric Carr, the Kiss drummer, after Peter Chris,
1: he was the drummer from 1980 through 1991. That was when he passed away. So yeah, it was about five or six studio albums, something like that.
0: But certainly, more people remember Peter Chris as a drummer of Kiss. Right. Than you have a book here that I bought, and I freaking it was by my bed. Not joking for about six months. Where if I was like just had some time, or I was going to go to the bathroom, or when I wanted some reading, take it off. Which is a, a, a biography of Kiss during the era when they didn't wear makeup. Like <laughs> you do the craziest subjects. <laughs> ever the most yeah. beautifully illogical non-commercial cool subjects ever and i'm just kind of fascinated how and why
1: <laughs> well maybe in a alternate universe i'm as big as say like stephen king or something like that with these oh. uh, very odd uh, subjects that i choose but uh, yeah no honestly uh, you definitely hit the nail right on the head every book i've ever done was a subject that i found interesting so yeah you're 100% right i um asked publishers back around 2007-2008 about a Shannon Hoon book everyone said no that won't sell so at that point was just i think that was right when self publishing was kind of catching on so i uh, self published that one and that one's probably gone on to become my best selling and most popular book the devil on one shoulder book
0: do you have any idea how many it sold-ish?
1: Because um, I started publishing first through a thing called Lulu, a publisher called Lulu. And then I switched at some point to uh, Kindle Direct. So honestly, I've lost track. But I know compared to like my other ones, and I know each monthly uh, sales sheet thing that I get, it's like still st- still selling.
0: You graduated from Stony Brook, the same year I graduated from Delaware in 1994. You've written, wait, what number of books are you up to? 30?
1: 32, I think. I just put out two. This uh, Well, September was the 50th anniversary of Jimi Hendrix's death and the 40th anniversary of uh, John Bonham's death. So I put out two books. Uh, One was Avatar of the Electric Guitar, The Genius of Jimi Hendrix, and the other one is Bonzo, for which I interviewed 30 renowned rock drummers. And I believe that was uh, books 31 and 32, if I'm not mistaken.
0: So your thing not exclusively, but mainly is the idea of an oral history where you do interviews and you sort of compile them in a chronological retelling of a, of a life. Yeah,
1: I mean, that, yeah, that that is definitely my preferred way to do it. But I have done books where, where it is traditional. Like I did a book about Soundgarden called Dark Black and Blue. That was done traditionally. A book about Faith No More called The Faith No More and Mr. Bungle Companion. That was done traditionally. A book about the bad brains. That was done traditionally. So like sometimes I do things like that traditionally, and then things like that Take It Off book by Kiss. That was not a uh, quote-unquote oral history, but it was like uh, album by album, and then I would just put subjects, and you know, it's kind of hard to explain, but that wasn't an oral history, nor was it a traditional setup, that book.
0: By the way, I, I know less about you, and there, I feel like most of my guests, there's more written about them. Like the, you actually are kind of mysterious in a way in your biography in that I see the same little bio over and over again. And I go to your LinkedIn page and I get a little more of a hint. But you graduated from Stony Brook in 1994 with a BA. You're I mean, your job listings through the years, you know, freelance journalist, liner notes writer, press release writer and author. How did this even happen?
1: Well, what's funny is in school, I was always uh, a very good speller and I always was great at English. In college, I had no idea that I was going to be a writer. I I kick myself to this day that I didn't take any kind of journalism classes. It was just a bullshit liberal arts thing that I wound up uh, majoring with at at Stony Brook. And uh, after I graduated, I had no idea what I was gonna do. I always loved music though. I always knew a lot about music. People would always be very, very impressed with my knowledge of music and also obscure sports facts. Maybe because I've never smoked pot. Maybe that's helped my brain a little bit. Uh, after I graduated in 94, I took, you know, some shitty jobs and was kind of just drifting around. And then I took a job as a customer service rep at a, a music magazine uh, local. And the uh, name of the magazine will, uh, will remain nameless. I took the job as a, as a customer service rep. I saw how easy it was to write. And I tried to convince my editor, you know, I really would like to write. Like, I know a lot about music, blah, blah, blah. And they gave me maybe one or two little tiny articles and then I kept pressing the issue and, and they just said straight out that I was not a good enough writer for them and that there was no way I was going to be able to uh, be a writer for them. So that was right as uh, the internet was starting to take off. And it's one of those things where someone you know, really kind of kicks you in the private parts and you want to uh, totally prove them wrong. So by that person telling me that I was never going to be a writer... I wasn't uh, good enough for them. It just totally lit a fire under my ass. And since 97, I've been writing for websites, magazines, and then with 2008, 2009-ish is when I made the jump to books. That was when I did the book about uh, Shannon Hoon. That came out in 2008. And then uh, the next year, I did that book called uh, Grunge is Dead, which was also a pretty popular book I've done, which was an oral history about all the grunge bands. So, yeah, since then, I've uh, just always uh, been working.
0: You know, I feel like you're... A- an excellent writer do you feel like they miss were they wrong about your writing abilities or did they these people saying you're not a good writer almost give you the determination to become a good writer
1: my boss at the time kind of had it out for me i think so uh, there was no way that uh, they were going to uh, give me a, a shot even though like i knew deep down that i could definitely it, it was just like doing album reviews and stuff like that, which like uh, probably a, a sixth grader could have written, you know, <laughs> so it was uh, kind of uh, insulting that they wouldn't have even like taken me seriously or anything. But absolutely, that inspired me. In fact, um, not too long ago, I saw a little video uh, thing of uh, Steve Martin, who I'm a, a big fan of talking about how he had a similar thing that uh, he was a writer, And he wanted to make the jump into doing stand-up comedy, I guess, back in the late 60s. And his agent or manager said, look, you're not good enough to be a stand-up comedian. There's no way you're going to be a stand-up comedian. And he said, thank God he did that, because now he gave him the reason to, you know, pretty much prove that person wrong. And from that point on, you know, he's gone on to be a complete legend, so.
0: Were you mad when that person was like, you're not good enough to write here?
1: Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. If anyone ever asked me for, like, advice with writing is, uh, try to prove people wrong. If someone says that you can't do it, then by all means, prove them wrong. You know, use that as fuel.
0: All right. So I'm, uh, I'm, I'm Greg and it's 13, whatever years ago, maybe 14 when the idea comes in. And I'm this guy and I don't have a ton of writing experience, but I love Blind Melon. Blind Melon, for those who don't know, and sadly there are people who won't know, is a great band from the early to mid nineties with Shannon Hoon, as our lead singer. He died of a cocaine overdose. He was terrific. So I'm you, and I'm a big Blind Melon fan. I don't have that much writing experience. I mean, how does this even happen? I'm gonna write a book about Blind Melon, and I'm gonna publish some, like, how does that even happen?
1: Yeah, well, uh, at that point, a few years before, uh, I was writing pretty regularly for the UK publication, Classic Rock Magazine, which is a uh, pretty cool magazine. And I did a feature about Blind Melon, and I interviewed Brad Smith, Christopher Thorne, and Roger Stevens.
0: I was to say three members of Blind Melon.
1: And uh, through that, I became friendly with them, and I did other interviews for other publications and stuff about, like, you know, whatever current project that they were working on. And I did an article or two for Rolling, the Rolling Stone website, also, like, for whatever solo thing they were working on. And uh, yeah, like you said to me, Shannon Hoon, you know, it's funny with Blind Melon to the casual fan, they think that they're like a one hit wonder or they were like a hippy dippy band. But I was lucky to see them five times with Shannon Hoon live and also was lucky to also briefly meet Shannon Hoon once. And I can honestly say that uh, to this day, those shows still remain some of my favorite shows of all time. Shannon Hoon is one of the most underrated singers, frontmen, lyricists ever. I think you would probably agree with me with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I did that article, and I always, you know, thought, well, I'm doing these articles, and the thing with Classic Rock Magazine, sometimes these articles would be super, super long. There was one article I did about the Isle of Wight Festival in 1970, and I did, like, almost 20 interviews for this thing. And I just thought, you know, here I am, I'm doing all these interviews, and I'm getting paid decently, but why, I mean, how how much more would it be to do a book if I'm going to be doing all this work for a little article? So then, at that point, it just... I kept going back and forth, like, you know, is it possible? Is it not possible? And then eventually, I just reached out to the uh, surviving members of Blind Melon. And they were definitely all for it. They said, yeah, definitely. We're on it. You know, we're, we're definitely on board if you want to do it. I started probably in 2006. And, like, at that point, since it was my first book, it took, like, way, way longer than how it takes me now to do books because now I know, like, exactly what to do.
0: What is your approach to a book like that? Like, how are you, how are you thinking of it? How are you organizing it? How are you going about reporting it?
1: Well, yeah, usually what I'll do um, is I'll do an outline of the book. I mean, the thing is, too, that I'm lucky. Every single book that I've ever done, like I said before, like I've been very familiar with the subject, so it's not like I really have to go back and do, like, a shit ton of, like, backtracking and, you know, a huge, like, year-long research. I kind of know the backstory, like, already. But, I mean, I will go back and do some research. And then I'll just outline, you know, just the subjects I want to uh, cover Uh, each person I interview is going to have slightly different questions. So if I know someone I'm going to be interviewing, I'll, you know, I'll come up with some base questions for the bass player, as opposed to, you know, if I'm interviewing the drummer, I'm not going to ask those questions. So, you know, I'll I'll do that. And then I've noticed too, as I get deeper into a book, I don't even really need an outline anymore at that point. I just have it all in my head and I just kind of let the uh, interview kind of just go the way it's going to go. And. Questions that I wouldn't have thought of, or subjects will just you know come up as the conversation goes along, and then from there, like I'm doing the interviews, I'm taping them, and then I have to go back and I have to transcribe them, which is that's probably the most time-consuming thing. And then from there, I have a spreadsheet. I put all the subjects pertaining to each thing into a you know column for a spreadsheet. Then I'll go back and it's just like one big giant uh, jigsaw puzzle, I just go back and you know per subject, you're just fitting it. And then you got, and then that takes time, too, because then you've got to read through it. You've got to delete, you know, things that are repeated over and over and over again. And you've got to uh, proofread and fit it so that, you know, it kind of flows, that, that there's some kind of good flow to the subject in the chapter. So, yeah, so that's pretty much how I go about my books. I mean, again, each, like, book is a little bit different. A oral history is going to be different than, like, that Kiss book, which was album by album and... We do, um, you know, concerts, like concert tours and their videos and stuff. So it's, it's a little bit different with each project.
0: The thing that I find amazing, this book, Devil on One Shoulder, Angel on the Other, is 331 mm-hmm. pages. You Correct. did not have a book deal for this book. You're doing this book, busting mm-hmm. ass on this book, but no idea what will come of it.
1: No, I mean, you know, the thing is, it's something that I didn't say before. The reason why I do these books, especially the uh, Shannon Hoon book, it's books and subjects that as a reader and as a fan, I always wanted to read, but that the book was not made available. I'm thinking like if I walked, you know, back in the old days of walking into bookstores, I don't know if people are really walking into bookstores anymore, but back in the days, if I walked into either a bookstore or say like Tower Records, which, you know, I used to love and I miss, I would, you know, see something that I wasn't expecting. And I would say, oh, I have to buy this. You know, if I saw a Shannon Hoon book, oh, I need to buy this. If I see a book about Faith No More or Soundguard, no, right. You know, I got to get this so that's kind of just as a fan something that I would want to read and I and I just take the assumption that if it's something that I want to read there has to be other people out there too. So that's pretty much how I go about the subjects
0: you finish the book Mm -hmm. and are you searching for a publisher while also realizing you probably won't find a publisher.
1: Yeah, I asked around with the Shannon Hoon book and I was turned down pretty much like what you just said. Everyone's like, oh, no, you know, no one. This isn't going to sell anything. No one's going to care about this. But, uh, you know, again, it was proven wrong because people are, are still buying it to this day. And I just uh, about a month ago put out an audio version of it with uh, with uh, me narrating.
0: Oh, wow. So you decide all these years later, you're like, this book sold really well. Mm. I don't know. Did you rent a studio? What did you do? Well, that's interesting.
1: Yeah, you know, I just did some research. You know, thank God for YouTube, because YouTube you could find anything. And I did some research how easy or hard it is to do a audiobook on uh just with a with a MacBook. And all you need is a MacBook, GarageBand, and a decent mic. My advice to if it's if you're a writer, you're gonna make the jump into doing an audio book, listen to one or two audiobooks and maybe do one or two samples of you just reading a chapter and then go back and listen to it and kind of critique yourself and you'll start getting better that way.
0: Wait, I'm, fa- I'm really genuinely fascinated by this. First so of all, I think you're like the, um, you're just a great freaking role model example for people who are like, I don't know, it seems so untouchable or I don't know if I can do this or it's just, you know, like you've busted your ass and busted your ass and you've taken subjects that would have been rejected. You know, if I went to a publisher and I said, I want to do a book about the seventies and eighties Islanders. They obviously had stars, they had Trotty and Boston right. and you know, great players. But I think I feel like my agent would be like, you're not going to get it. You're not going to get a great book deal for Ireland. Yeah. And I feel like you're basically like, fuck that. I want to write these books and I'm going to do these books.
1: That book about the Islanders, I did reach out to one or two publishers and they're like, oh, no. You know, which let me ask you a personal question as a sports writer. Yeah. Why is it? Do you think that the 80 to 83 or really even 84, because they made it to the Stanley Cup in 84, why do you think that they are such an underrated slash overlooked team when people talk about the great sports teams of all time? You know, people go on and on about, oh, the Yankees, oh, the uh, current-day current Patriots, you know, they, they, they'll talk about the Bulls. But for some reason, no one will ever talk about the Islanders.
0: I think the biggest issue, to be honest, is just that it's hockey. Like, all the teams you mentioned were NFL, NFL Major League Baseball, right. NBA. Really, with the exception of Gretzky in Edmonton, who kind of transformed yeah. sports, I don't think most, North, most United States sports fans mm. think of hockey the same way they do as the other sports. Fair or unfair?
1: I mean, I'm just like, curious, though, Like, you know, why you, know, like, you look at you know, like the Post or anything, and there's all these articles about all oh, the Patriots or this uh, fantastic dynasty, and meanwhile, the you know, Islanders never, never get the props, kind of?
0: No, I'm with you. Wait, what percentage of your books have you self-published versus getting some sort of deal on? Eight books have been through a traditional
1: publisher, and the rest have been self-published. All right, so Take It
0: Off, the book about yes. priests, their years without the mask. Is that a publisher?
1: Yes, that's a, pub- a publisher called Jawbone Press, which uh, I got to say, they're a fantastic publisher. They're a UK-based publisher, but they put out really good books. Like, they've done books about Cliff Burton, Randy Rhodes, and uh, a, a bunch of really cool <clears throat> music books. And, yeah, I uh, went to them for that.
0: So every, um, every book I write takes two to three years to do, right? mm-hmm there's no way I could write a book in the speed you're writing, right? It just, I couldn't do it. I, I don't think mentally I could do it. I don't think physically I could do it. I don't think I would do a good job. Like I just think I wouldn't do you with speed sacrifice quality at all. Is there something you lose by doing them so quickly?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, I look at it as if you go through my books with like a fine tooth comb, you may find like a few, maybe like a spelling, not maybe spelling, but maybe like a word because like spell check won't pick it up or something. Mm-hmm. But then I look at it, like some of my favorite Led Zeppelin albums, you hear mistakes and flubs. I mean, not that like the band stops cold and like it's like a complete bomb. But like, you know, Jimmy Page may miss a note or someone, you know, or not even, you know, Led Zeppelin. Like in any band, you'll hear like a drumstick drop or something like that. And uh, we still enjoy those records, right? Yeah. So, I mean, if, you know, there's one or two little flubs, who cares? I mean, you know. And then also the bottom line is I'm also trying to earn a living, so <laughs> the more uh, books I can get out, you know, the more I can pay the bills and I can pay my mortgage. So, but but also that said, uh, there was a great quote from uh, the late great Freddie Mercury, who I'm a huge fan of, who said, I don't the, the exact quote I can't remember, but he said something to the effect to the effect that when he was dying, he told the surviving members, look, you know, whatever you want to do with the Queen name, just put it out, but just don't uh, just make sure it's of high quality if it has my name or the, or the queen name to it. To which, you know, of course, I'm not comparing myself to Freddie Mercury or Queen, but just I feel that if I'm going to put something out, it can't be like a big pile of shit. It has to have some kind of quality. You know, it, has to, it has to, like, I have to be happy with it, and I have to compare it to my other books and be confident that other people will also enjoy
0: it too. probably interviewed eight gazillion people because you, you've written these lengthy oral histories. What can you do to make an interview a good interview as opposed to a crappy interview?
1: Each interview is totally different. Um, some interviews, maybe you're a little bit nervous for than others. Other interviews, you're completely pleasantly surprised. Uh, one of my favorite interviews of all time, because I'm just such a fan of the Sex Pistols, was uh, John Lydon. And if you look at the interviews he did throughout the years on uh, YouTube, he would totally screw around with the uh, interview and, and quite often would just totally you know, not be happy with the interview, would pretty much go uh, you know, toe-to-toe with the interviewer and just get up and just leave or just cut the interview off and just make fun of the interviewer. But uh, when I interviewed him about, this is about five or six years ago, he couldn't have been a nicer guy. I mean, maybe because right away I was asking questions that was apparent. Like I was going to ask, like I was asking him kind of semi-obscure questions about pill, uh, public, public image limited, and stuff like that. So maybe that put him at ease to kind of show like I wasn't going to ask like, you know, dopey questions or stuff like that. But uh, that was a pleasant – so, like, I was all kind of like, oh, this interview may be, you know, kind of out there or be a little, uh, you know, confrontational. But it wasn't. He was a totally nice, cool guy. So, you never know, really, um, who's going to, you know – but, yeah, but just to pretty much, like, answer your question, each interview is different. That's pretty much what what, what I'm getting to. I mean, some of my favorite interviews, uh, I did an hour-long face-to-face interview with uh, Ace Frehley. That was great, just because I'm such a big Kiss fan you know interviewing uh you know just Wait, doing, let me like, ask you a question so yeah. he's
0: ace freely and ace ah. freely has been interviewed about kiss only 70 million times in his life right. You know? like, right he doesn't go a day without being reminded of a band he was in you know and like over and over and over so how do you make the time count with ace freely
1: uh well that one i was interview i was interviewing him for a uh, guitar magazine so that was primarily for that um it was also pretty cool because it was done in uh, the Gibson, excuse me, Gibson Guitar Place, which some someplace in Manhattan. I forget where it is now. But uh, what was cool was the, the head guy there gave me and Ace like a guided tour of the place before we even started. So that kind of cut into the time a little bit. But yeah, that one, that particular face-to-face interview with Ace was really just for the uh, guitar magazine. So that was that one, but since then I've interviewed him probably about, I must have interviewed him close to 10 times now uh, over the years.
0: Like you go into an interview with Ace Frehley. Uh, you're obviously a Kiss fan. You right. don't want to come off like a stupid fanboy. Right. But you, you, you definitely need to show, him. like you don't want to ask him how old are you? Or you know, like where are you right. like. How do you make sure you get a good interview with him? How do you make sure you're prepared for a good interview with him?
1: You know what's funny is um, out of all the interviews I've ever done, it never came to a screeching halt. It was never a complete bomb. Every interview I've ever done has not been a awful interview or like the person just ended the interview or got up and walked out or anything like that. Did you ever have that experience? No. I mean, I've had people be complete assholes on the phone. Yeah. To, to the point that I'll just do my question and just, and just get off. You know, I'm not going to, you know, like, you know, hang around. But Never to the point that like, you know, you see sometimes you, like I'll be looking on, <clears throat> excuse me, I'll look on YouTube and I'm a big fan of Lou Reed and he was someone that I wish I got the opportunity to interview because, you know, I'm such a big fan of the Velvet Underground and everything. And there's like these interviews where he's being kind of difficult, but I'm watching it. And the to me, it's so obvious. The reason why he's being difficult is because the interview is being a, a complete schmuck. Like they're not asking good questions. They're asking stupid questions. Or, or else there was one guy, he was, like, a foreign guy, and I think there was kind of, like, a lang- language barrier thing between him and Lou Reed. And the guy, like, the, the thing, the um, title of it on YouTube is, like, something, like, like you know, you know I, I forget what it is, but it's, like, not nice to Lou Reed that he's, like, a bad human being or something. And, like, I'm watching the interview, and it's not like that I think Lou Reed is being a complete asshole. It's just that there's, like, a language barrier. And maybe he's trying to be, like, a little funny or something, but I guess the interviewer just doesn't know, like, new york slang or new york type of talking or uh, you know so you know each person i guess is different is kind of what i'm trying to get to you know you never know what you're going to get out of somebody
0: before we continue with two writers thinking yang a quick word from our sponsor hey this is jeff perlman i'm here with my son emmett who started covid as a squeaky throated boy and is now a deep voiced man it's all because of 503 sports kings of the throwback sports merchandise really i assumed it was puberty Maybe, but every order of a throwback jersey, hat, or t-shirt comes with a case of camels. I've been smoking like a chimney, Dad, thanks to 503 Sports. Shit, what? Just kidding. Wishful thinking. It's hormones. What's the worst interview you ever had?
1: The weirdest one was probably William Shatner, because uh, his music to me is just fascinating. I mean, that guy to me is the Jimi Hendrix of like oddities, you know? Well, I was interviewing him for Record Collector magazine, and he had just put out a cd i don't remember the name of it i can't remember the name of it but it was like a symphony with him reading poetry over it and the person setting up the interview clearly knew i was doing this interview for record collector magazine it was going to be about his music but when i got william shatner on the phone all he wanted to talk about was his book and you know i uh, and i asked him some questions about the book cuz you know i'm not going to be you know a jerk but then I started asking questions about music and he was answering them, but he kept trying to go back to the book, go back to the book. And then it just got to the point where he was like, well, look, you know, it was nice speaking to you, but now I have to, you know, he, he pretty much ha- he, he had some other interview that he had to do. And it was just kind of weird that he would, like, I was trying to get him back and I, I even explained to him like, you know, this interview is supposed to be about this, this album that you just did. And he just, I guess that, that day, he just wanted to talk about his book. So, you know, oh. so it's so like, that was kind of odd. You did a book about the eighties Jets. Right. right. I just want to say, I like, as you say, 80s Jets, you actually start laughing. I like that.
0: Well, it's funny. I, um, I've written books lately. I've written a lot of books about successful teams. And every now and then, yeah. I'll have some, like, like I'll have a Laker fan say, oh, I'm so happy they're winning again. And I'm like, I've been a Jet fan for 40 years. The best quarterback in my lifetime of the New York Jets has been Ken O'Brien or Chad Pennington. Don't, don't talk to me about how hard it's been to be a Phil in the Black Cubs fan or whatever. Like, okay, right, right, so, right. Um, you're obviously a Jet fan, grew up a Jet fan, Long Island, blah, blah, blah. You decided to do a book about the 80s Jets. Do members of the 80s Jets want to talk about the 80s Jets?
1: Yes. Yes, they were all totally. Uh, out of all the books, all the sports books I've done, I've done a book about the Islanders called Dynasty. I did a book, that book about the Jets called Sack Exchange. I did a book about the, this ties in with these topics that no one uh, really thinks of. The, the, the 80s Yankees. Oh, yeah, I saw that. Yeah. Yes, that one was called, called Just Out of Reach. And then also I did a book, you're going to love this one, about the 77 through 83 Mets called The Seventh Year Stretch.
0: So I saw that. <laughs> I honestly feel like, I feel like somewhere there's a connective tissue between our heads because I am more fascinated by Doug Flynn and Steve Henderson than I yes. am Mike Good and Daryl Strawberry.
1: Well, now, the thing is, too, that you, I'm sure, know this, but maybe the casual fan doesn't. It was during those awful years that the seeds that the were being planted for that 1986 team with crafting and trades and stuff. So, you know.
0: Right. Wait, so you're doing, an, you're doing an 80s Jets book, and you're like, I'm going to do an 80s Jets book. Right. You got a book deal for that one?
1: That one? You know it's funny? Um, I've, uh, just to quickly sidetrack, um, I've tried to use agents and I've used reached out to maybe one or two, and they led to complete dead ends. Uh, they were time-wasting scenarios, and I just pretty much said to myself, unless I'm working with like the biggest of big celebrity, if I'm working with a celebrity on a book, I will probably reach out to an agent again. But just for my books through like Jawbone Press or my self-published ones, I was just totally soured to working with agents. So with that Jets book, I did actually have an agent. You know what? Let me think back to a second. Um, I'm pretty sure that Jets book, I did have an agent, and we just wasted so much time with it that I, I just happened to reach out to a publisher called ECW Press. I just happened to call or, or get in contact that day that they were having their meeting of books to do, and that book they were a fan of, and also something I, I forgot to say, all the books that I do, I pretty much do, I, I do the whole book, I complete the book, then I shop it around, or you know, I okay. put it out. I don't just do, like some people, like, you know, I, I wanna ask you something. Do you just do a sample or two, or do you like to do your whole book right, uh, right, uh, right away?
0: Oh no, I do a, a proposal and then shop it. Okay, and then shop it, okay. I don't, write, I don't write the book at all until I have okay. it.
1: Have there been books that you've done that you did a proposal and just never went anywhere and you just shelved it?
0: No. Okay. Yeah. No. Okay. I've had a kind of charmed life, though. Like that's yeah. a Charmed life in that regard.
1: I've actually wasted time where there's been about three, four, or five books that I've done in my life that were I, I actually completed the book, but then they were shelved for whoever I was working with made it difficult, or we just didn't see eye to eye. Or
0: what's either, a book? You know? What's a book? That? That, what's a book that's been written that never uh, never existed?
1: As much as I would love to say, you know, you know, you know, it's like why why uh, give those people any kind of credit? You know, that's pretty it much, but. But, you know, know, just something just quick I just want to throw out there because something that I I never get the opportunity to say in these interviews when people are interviewing me about my books, a great, great interview that I'm so happy I was able to do was Al Arbor, who to me I think is one of the – again, has to be on par with Belichick and all the great, great coaches. That guy was so amazing and such a nice guy, and it was so great to interview him for that book, Dynasty.
0: But it's so interesting because – you ask, why do I think people don't think of the Islanders? And I'm thinking the first thing I have to do is tell people Al Arbor was the legendary coach of the New York Islanders. Like right, most people right. probably don't even know who Al Arbor was unless you're a you know, the,
1: You know, the thing is too, that Islander team, which is probably why I like them so much. There was no uh, flamboyant, super duper star guy going out to clubs and bars and getting in trouble with the law. They all flew totally under the radar. In fact, there's a part in that book where, uh, I think Stan Fischler or someone says that that team, maybe it was actually Jigs McDonald says, uh, that team, they, had, they actually had uh, offers to do commercials and things like that. And the head leaders of the team said, absolutely not. And they would, sh- they would shoot it down because they just said, that's going to totally get in the way of us winning. No way. We have to 100% focus on this team, which is unheard of now,
0: you know? I would argue... Bad decision because a lot of these guys probably could have used the money. They weren't getting rich back then.
1: I mean, think of back then. They, those guys were maybe – I mean, you hear the stories about, like, the 69 Jets. Like, a lot of those guys besides Namath had to get jobs in the offseason. I mean, those Islanders guys maybe weren't that bad off. But now, like, all those guys – not all those guys, but a lot of those guys have just, like, regular jobs again.
0: Yeah. When right. you have a book coming out, especially with this rapid pace of books coming out, mm-hmm. do you have a promotional – uh, approach do you reach out to radio stations on your own do you just hope the books catches word of mouth how do you go about it yeah
1: what it is i'm i'm good friends with a good uh with a good publicist his name is Chipster his name is Chip Chip Ruggieri, and his company's called Chip, is called Chipster okay and he and he he's like Judas Priest's head publicist and he works with a lot of hard rock and heavy metal bands and uh i have a good i have a very good relationship with him and uh, we work out deals that he helps uh do press releases for all my, uh, you know, rock music type books, right. but, it, but, it, but if it's a sports book, I'm not going to go through him. Uh, I'll reach out to, you know, if, like for instance, that jets book, I reached out to a bunch of uh, jets, uh, fan sites, you know, I'll reach out to Facebook pages. Um, you know, I'll just cold call like Newsday or stuff and just say, Hey, you know, would you have this book? Would you want to interview me and see if a writer there wants to interview me? Um, I know I was on like WFAN to promote the Yankees book. So each, each project is different. It's probably easier for, I mean, I've only done four sports books and I think I'm probably not going to do any, any others because I've noticed that my music books sell much better than my uh, sports ones. Well, I think it's a huge
0: mistake giving up sports because I feel like the 1981 to 86 New Jersey Nets, need <laughs> and you are the guy to write it. <laughs> there you go
1: now well, you know i'll put that in the, you know i would <laughs> you know i you know what i i i wasn't going to say but i'm just going to throw this out there because you know it's it's a book i don't think i'm ever going to do but i would like someone to do it and uh you know i'll i'll read it uh the whole two thousand ninety 2000 era mets yeah yeah that one I I, I I was toying with doing it but then like um doing that one like Mets book was kind of hard to get people and like, you know, some of the, you know, I, I mean, I, I was able to get people, but some of the, you know, people are kind of difficult and I was, I was going to do that 99, 2000 Mets book, but I, I just said, Hey, you know what? It's just not worth it with the, you know, work I have to do. And, and like I said, the sports book don't sell as well as the uh, music one. So I think from here on out, probably, probably just music and pop culture type stuff. I'm going to throw an idea at you
0: mm-hmm. for
1: real. Paul and Oates. Ooh, I like it. Well, the only thing is I know that, uh, I know Oates did a book. Did, did yeah. Hall do a book
0: No, Oates did a book. It wasn't, it was meh.
1: Okay. Um, I did interview Oates for the Ot Rock book. And, no. I did, and, and, and I interviewed both Hall and Oates for one of my most underrated books that um, I'm definitely going to make this into a uh, audio book because this book needs to get more attention, which is called MTV Ruled the World the early years of music video which uh, i sadly had the misfortune of working on this book and it was all ready to go and this book was actually this is why i dislike agents so much this agent wasted a full year almost of shopping this book around and she obviously wasn't doing a very good job because i interviewed some of like the biggest names for this book i interviewed like all the big names of like that era of like mtv and she just couldn't get it placed. She just said, I don't think this book is going to, this subject just isn't good. Just, you know, blah, blah, blah. So anyway, I went out and did this book myself. I'm just about to put out this book. And then I read that someone else through a major publisher is doing a book about not, it's not just early MTV, but it did, it did cover that era. And and since it was through a publisher, it got all the muscle of promotion behind it. Whereas mine got kind of forgotten. So that kind of sucks. But anyway, I did interview both Hall & Oates for that book.
0: It's a good book, Hall & Oates. A lot of diehard fans.
1: <laughs> there you go. No, well, listen, I'm a huge fan of Yacht Rock, too, and I am a huge Hall & Oates fan, so.
0: Well, Greg, I appreciate you doing this, man. You've, you've brought legit reading joy to my life.
1: And, you know, something that I, I didn't get, I mean, I, I've told you this off this interview, or, or, or privately, uh, I'm a huge fan of your book, The uh, Bad Guys One. Thank you. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm a huge fan of that book. That's, uh, that's I, I'm going to tell you, that, that's my favorite sports book of all time.
0: Seriously, oh, I, appreciate I appreciate
1: that. It was great speaking with you. And if you ever want to do it again, uh, let's do it.
0: I want to thank today's guest, Greg Prado, for joining me on Two Writers Slinging Yang. You can follow Greg on Twitter at Greg Prado Writer. Music is by the dazzling MC Whiteout. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep writing.